Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified and... Today, I'm very honored to welcome my two guests, Lauren Myerskoff Mueller and Tashomi Campbell. Now, Tashomi Campbell is a person that was exonerated after 16 years in prison of a crime he didn't commit. And Lauren is an attorney, a staff attorney at the Illinois, uh, Illinois Innocence Project. Welcome to both of you, Tashomi and Lauren. Thank you so much for having doing? us. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. So um, it's always a little complicated um, when there's three people on the line. So I'll try to, if I have questions, I'll try to direct it to you individually. Uh, But I'm so glad to have you here. And Lauren, um, let's just start with with you a little bit. You're with the Innocence Project. Tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got involved in the Innocence Project. Sure. Um, So I am from Illinois, I, after, or I guess at the end of undergraduate, I I went to college in St. Louis. That was when I first became interested in this type of work. I interned at the St. Louis Public Defender's Office. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't even know I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know I wanted to go to law school or do criminal work at all. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of the issues that people face when when going through the court system and in the justice system and a lot of the um, inadequacies of that system and the unfairness that, that can arise. So uh, at that point I decided I wanted to go to law school to do at least public interest criminal work. Um, And I actually worked before that because I already had a job lined up in DC for three years, then went back to law school to do this kind of work, and I was lucky enough to go to a school that has an innocence project in the law school. So I went to Northwestern Law School here in Chicago, and they have the Center on Wrongful Convictions, which is a fantastic group and does great work uh, getting wrongfully convicted people released. So I was able to work on a couple of innocence cases while I was in law school, as well as intern for the Cook County Public Defender's Office on their homicide task force for a couple of years. And I got great experience, worked with fantastic attorneys, and I just loved that kind of work. Um, and so after law school, I did about a year as a public defender and then um, did a, a short stint doing some private criminal defense work. And then this job opened up and I was lucky enough to get hired uh, to continue doing the innocence work, which I love because you're really able to spend more time on cases than as a public defender. As we know, they are very, there's a very high volume of cases and they're very Mm -hmm. woefully understaffed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm lucky enough to be able to spend a lot of time delving into the cases, researching the issues, investigating witnesses, uh, getting to know the client Mm -hmm. and uh, arguing in court for them. And it's really kind of the best of both worlds for me personally and it's such a rewarding sort of job. Um, it can be very frustrating, as well. I'm sure talking about for sure, yeah, this, yeah. Um, during this show, but um, and that and now I, you know, been happily doing it for about three years now. Oh, very good. Well, it's it's God's work. It is God's work. And uh, <laughs> now is. I was at a wrongful conviction conference in Chicago in 1998. Um, it was a huge conference, and I think it was um, sponsored mm-hmm. by Northwestern. Yes. It, that might have been, was it the National Innocence Conference? I'm not sure, but I have a great poster still <laughs> mm-hmm. from, from that conference. But it was an amazing conference because they brought in, I don't know, a, a whole bunch of uh, exonerees that told their story on the stage. It was fabulous. So uh, uh, you're doing good work in and I, I know you're having, I know Cook County particularly has a reputation for problem convictions. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's a constant so- struggle. And we've, we've unfortunately 
through the work, lawyers have been able to uncover particularly bad police officers or detectives who, you know, in some cases were physically torturing confessions, false confessions out of people, and other times psychologically coercing false confessions and threatening people. And it just caused so many wrongful convictions uh, that we're still uncovering to this day. Um, And, you know, there are a number of issues in that because the the person who actually committed the crime might still be out there committing other crimes. We've seen that. And it also is bad for the good cops and the people who are trying to do the right thing. And to show me has been very active in this program that we have in the police training Institute where we actually go and we talk to cadets in Champaign, Illinois um, about our work and wrongful convictions and how to avoid wrongful convictions. And there are so many officers who care about this and want to do the right thing and don't want to do the wrong thing. But then, you know, there are these, these, particularly bad cops who were so bad that it seems like they pervade everything. Right. Well, unfortunately, uh, bad always influences good. (laughs) Why that happens, I don't know. It doesn't work the other way. Um, So that's a good lead-in to um, you, Tashomi. So this is Tashomi Campbell, and uh, he's a free man today due to a lot of a lot of teamwork from a lot of people, I suspect. Uh, so, to show me, let's let's start with you were convicted in 2016. I'm sorry, not 2000. In uh, ni- uh, 1998, correct? Yes. Yes. Correct. And so, yeah. So, tell me what was going on. You were arrested. Um, I guess in 1997. Is that right? I was arrested in 1997, uh, but uh, I got uh, officially like like they they actually just came and got me like in 1998. But the, okay. the, the um the crime, the crime that they accused me of was it was committed in 1997 Christmas Eve. Okay. All right. And, so. Uh, and so that was in Champaign, Illinois. Where is that? I am not familiar with the geography there. That's Where is that compared uh, to like, Chicago? It's like a, it's like a, it's like it's like an hour and a half away from Chicago. Okay. It's like, well, you ever heard of uh, fighting the Illini? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. The U of I, the U of I. That's where the U of I College of the um, University of Illinois College is located. Okay. All right. So. Yeah. So you were twenty-one years old at the time. Yeah, what? I was just in the time of twenty-one. And now you're what, thirty? Forty-two. Forty-two. Oh, forty-two. Okay. I, I got. I got. I did eighteen years. Um, I got released uh, when I was thirty-nine. Okay. That's yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Years, eighteen years for crime that I did not commit. I I climbed a mountain full of nose to get to the top of one yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And, um, so, so to show me what was going on in your life at the time, what what were you doing, and and uh, what were your goals at that point? Well, you know, I was just a normal kid, you know, trying to figure it out. Uh, I was working, you know, temporary jobs, you know, stuff like that. But I, you know, um, I could say that in that way, you know, prison was a blessing and a curse because I reached into a negative situation and pulled out something positive. You know, I didn't let I didn't let like me getting found guilty for something that I didn't do mm-hmm. stop me from uh, you know accomplishing things. I didn't want to I didn't want to be locked up over ten years and didn't have anything to show for it. Okay. So I went to school. I went to school. Got my GED. I went to college. You know, uh, got my associates in general studies. You know, okay. and um, I just I just utilized it. You know, I took. I reached into that negative situation and pulled out something positive for myself. And I didn't even know if I was coming home. I just wanted to do that because I felt like, you know, just prison is what you make it. And I wanted to make it something positive for me. To show me, did you, know, you ever uh, think you were going to be able to come home? I, I just, I, did, I wanted to believe that. But there were, there were times that I had my doubts because... I was making all the sense in the world, like when it came to the arguments that um, we, we we brought before the court system, the judges, and it was like, 
it was like, uh, I felt like I was being bullied, you know? I felt like mm. no matter what I argued and what type of sense I made, they would still tell me no. Mm. So, yeah, uh, you know, I, I had my doubts, but, you know, uh, by the grace of God, I just, I kept believing. I kept I kept believing what the Word says. You know, um, faith to say a size of a mustard seed moves mountains. Ask and you shall receive. And I truly believe that. And uh looked up one day and they told me that I was being released. And, you, uh, you, must not, you, <laughs> you must have said, oh, this can't be happening. I'm dreaming. I mean, wow. You know, I mean, wow. You know, after all those years. I mean, you got to think, if I had spent three more years, uh, three or four more years in prison, I would have been in prison as long as I was in the free world. You know? And they, so, yeah, it was you, <laughs> you didn't know it was coming either. They just came and told you to pack up, right? Well, I knew I had some good arguments, but after a while, you know, you get humble. You 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 know, all those years of believing that yeah, it's, it's going to be a quick fix, and and then they finally do it for you. Mm. You know, you have more you have more belief. You know, you stay humble and you hope for the best, but it's like you start to expect the worst. So so I'm like, okay, it looks good. It looks good, but I've been told so many no so many times. I just I just got to keep it pushing, and and sh- this time they said yes, and yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing, <laughs> and I think I think my judge, I think my federal judge, uh, he was very fair. He wasn't bound by politics. I felt a lot of times that I was getting denied because it was like uh, mm-hmm. election election time of the year, and they and nobody wanted to, you know, raise an eyebrow or anything or jeopardize their their, their um you know, being reelected. I, I felt the politics played a part when I was dealing with the state courts. But when mm-hmm. I got in the federal courts, I felt as though they were fair, more fair because they weren't bound by politics. And, and I, I mean, yeah. he, he was more fair. He was more than fair with me. And, he, you know, I, 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 I think, I thank judge Baker so much, like, man, and I never let him down. You know, he didn't, he didn't make a mistake with me. You know, I mean, I, 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 to this day, I mean, I, I haven't even been out three years yet. It's fabulous. I haven't even been out three years yet. Yeah, I yeah, mean, wow. it's fabulous. And so what, what the story I read about you uh, to show me is that you only had an hour's notice when they came and told you to pack up. Yeah, and, I was on and a you visit, were released. I was on a visit, yeah, I was, on a, I was in the visiting room, and they was coming. To, the officers came and told me, hey, we got that call. Um and somebody wants to talk to you, and I'm thinking, like, uh, okay, well, uh, I'll get back to the South. I'm thinking this has something to do with, like, court conference call or something. He said, no, we got a call to release you. I said, wow. Yeah, no wow. kidding. I, mean, I, I, I couldn't say nothing but wow, you know, uh, to be on a visit and, 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 and to get a call. They had 130 days. The court system had 130 days either retry me or let me go. Mm-hmm. I got that informa- I got that information on on December thirtieth. So I was screaming Happy New Year's for a whole nother type of reason. Like I was very happy. Yeah. But I didn't know I didn't know that I would be rele- be almost released like thirty days or twenty eight days later or thirty days, twenty nine to twenty eight days later. They had hundred and thirty days I was released on January 29th, hmm. and um, they had like they had like more they had like a hundred a hundred some days to make that decision, but they let me go the next that in that same month or the next month, the January hmm. 29th, and that's the thing. My one of my lawyers, my lawyer, she helped me out. Her birthday is on January 29th. She was oh, wow. born on <laughs> one. She was born on 129. I was born on 921. So it was the opposite of my birthday. I should be playing that, I should be playing that lottery number every day. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I was born I was born 92176. I got released on 129. Her birthday is the opposite of mine. That, that is, is amazing. incredible. That's incredible to show me. So, let's go back to when you were arrested. I know this is, you know, I'm Un- probably uncomfortable for you to remember, but I think it's important for people to hear it. So, so when you were arrested, what were you thinking? Um, I thought I believed in the system. I believed that 
you know, once they do their investigation and everything, I trusted the system to work because I had never been into any situation. I had never been into any situation like that. So I, I believe the system. I believe that, you know, it works. And, mm. you know, I know I didn't do anything wrong. So I felt like I was going home. I always believed I was going home. However, the police told me, the police investigators, when they picked me up, they told me, we don't know if you had anything to do with this case, but if you don't, if you don't say what we want you to say, tell us what you know. I said, we want you to say, we're going to throw a murder on you. And I told them that I'll see them at trial. And sure enough, I said, I, I sat in the county for 11 months mm-hmm. and they got one of my first cousins to get on the stand. They said, they told him the same thing they told me and he got on the stand and lied on me for the state. Really? And they found me guilty. Yeah, they found me guilty with no physical evidence, no incriminating statement. His word and, and two other, and another guy's word that was uh that were they were they were they were on the case, but they got released to to make that deal with the state because at that time they were just trying to make an example of somebody. But they were mad at me because I wouldn't take the deal. I wouldn't lie on the body. I wouldn't say what they wanted me to say. Mm-hmm. And the people and, that test. The people that testified against you, what did they get in exchange? Immunity. Okay. They they got released. As soon as they said what the state wanted them to say, they got released. And one of them, and the proof, <laughs> excuse me, my allergies. And to prove this point, one of them was fight, fighting a, 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 a drug case, a pistol case, uh-huh. <laughs> and a home invasion. He got, he got, Temporary, um, temporary discharge on those cases. <laughs> he didn't even go. He didn't even get probation. He, he didn't even go get probation. He just had to stay out of trouble for a certain amount of time. And <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. And they let him go. Okay. And and then they both testified against you. I call it a test to lie. They didn't test, test a lie. lie. Okay, they both lie. test a lie against you. <laughs> All right. So, okay, so then you get appointed a court-appointed attorney. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And it's my understanding that your attorney didn't really do anything other than show up to court. Yeah, he he didn't do any um, research. He didn't... Huh, oh, boy, he's out <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You want me to take it to Lauren for a while? No, no, I'm good. It's just uh, pollen. Okay. I'm, I'm allergic to pollen. And yeah. um, I'm in a new state, so so I have to get used to this, this <laughs> pollen here. Okay. But, uh, yes, um, he, 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 he basically was assigned to me through the courts, and he only came to see me like, like four or five times. Mm-hmm. And he had, like, three phone conversations with me out of 11 months in the county. And he didn't do any research. He didn't ask me anything. Um, he didn't, he didn't, he, he just, I felt that he wasn't doing his job. But the thing is, I didn't know any better then because, like I said, as I said before, I didn't know that much about law. I didn't right. understand. I had never been through any situation like this, so I trusted him with my life. And... You had never been. You'd never been in the system before. Is that right? You never been no, arrested. No, nothing. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've been. In, I've been arrested before, but it was stuff like driving tickets or something like that. Mm-hmm. I've never like nothing so serious as this. And uh, the day of trial, he asked me. He said, "Before we go to trial, is there anything you would like to cop out to?" And I really? said, "Um." And I said, "I said, yeah, really." Like, I couldn't believe that. Like, I couldn't believe that. Like, you, you, you know I'm innocent, but you want me to plead good to some stuff that I didn't do, and I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Right. And I said, are you sure you don't want any of my witnesses? Because at that time, I had witnesses that could have shown up to court for me that actually pled guilty to the case. He said, mm-hmm. we don't, there's no need for them. We don't need them. So, and they, so let me ask Lauren a couple of questions here. Um, Lauren, when was it determined that the trial attorney did 
didn't investigate the case, didn't have witnesses interviewed, and really didn't do his job. I mean, Kishomi tried to make those claims immediately following his trial, even on his direct appeal, you know, the one that happens right after he was convicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this, this is a unique case because there were, he had, he had several co-defendants. Initially, I believe they charged 12 people with this murder. And then, um, like Tashomi said, two of them were given immunity to testify. So one of his co-defendants went to trial on the exact same issues, exact same witnesses, the week before Tashomi did, and he was acquitted. That, huh. attor- that man's attorney, the co-defendant's attorney, actually did call these witnesses, and it was enough to prove that he was not guilty. So mm-hmm. it's a unique case where we could see what would have actually happened had this lawyer done what he should have done, had he done the investigation, had he called these witnesses, and it showed that Tashomi would have been acquitted. So it's interesting because, honestly, the, the ineffective assistance of counsel claim is, I think, the hardest to prove, one of the hardest mm-hmm. to prove, at least, mm-hmm. um, because the standard is so rigorous. It's, it's, it's a very steep standard. So you have to not only show that the, um, that the counsel was deficient, that his representation fell below this objective standard of reasonableness, and there's so much deference given to that because mm-hmm. the courts always just say, oh, well, that's trial strategy. And technically, it can be trial strategy to hold the state to its burden, to do nothing and just say, oh, they didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. But then there's the second prong where you also also have to prove that the defendant was actually prejudiced and that um, there's a reasonable probability that but for this deficient performance, the results would have been different, that, that he would have been acquitted. So it's, it's really difficult, and since there's so much deference to the trial attorney, it's so rarely, so rarely um, an effective argument. And that's why Tisho tried to make that argument multiple times in state court and appealed mm-hmm. and was denied, um, and then finally went to the federal court, which is very, very difficult because they have that EDPA standard um, where they can't, if, if the state has already decided on an issue, they can't over, you know, kind of overrule that issue, so to speak, unless the state's findings were so unreasonable. So they have an even huh. extra level of <laughs> difficulty doing it. But right. I mean, thank, thank goodness they were able to see that this is that case, that this is the rare case where, um, he needs at least a new trial because of this ineffective counsel that he had. And I mean, when I say it's nearly impossible to get your case overturned on this issue, I, I mean it. I, I have a, a case right now where another case from the nineties where the counsel didn't, again, didn't do anything, no investigation, just like to show case. It was a death penalty case. And mm-hmm. this, and, and he did a similar thing where he told the client that uh, she should just plead blindly, open plea, you know, no, um, there was no agreement on the table, no offer on the table, but you just plea to this death penalty case, death penalty eligible case. And then just see, just see what happens. Convinced her to do this. She did. And she got sentenced to the death penalty. And the lawyer hadn't done anything. And all of the courts, including the federal courts in her case, said that that was fine. That that was okay. So in, that was in okay Illinois, strategy. you can actually plead out and get the death penalty? You could. We don't have the death penalty anymore, thank God. Um, right. I mean, I cannot imagine doing this work with a death penalty. And I have so much respect for people who have to do that in those states. I mean, it's awful. Um but, but yes, you could, in, in, which people find mind-boggling. Illinois has some very weird uh, yeah. laws and, and such. Um, but not only can you do that, um, but we also have the worst accountability and felony murder rules. So, okay, let's, you know, part let's of the issue... 
Yeah, let's come back to that, Lauren, because that's an important area. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break well, and group, and we'll be back. And to show me. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back here with Shomi Campbell was exonerated uh, from a crime he didn't commit in in Illinois in January of 2016. And the lawyer, Lauren Myerskopf-Mueller from the Innocence Project in Illinois, Illinois Innocence Project, who is here to talk about his case as well. So uh, back to you, Lauren. We were just talking about um, the situation you were faced with. Now, I have a question. Um, in Illinois... Well, let me say this. Uh, I know in death penalty cases that an attorney has the duty to investigate, according to the American Bar Association. Is that does that carry on into regular felony cases? Do they have a duty to investigate? Technically, yes. <laughs> so okay, you know it's interesting because part of the issue in the case that I, I mentioned was that there are these guidelines, they're technically guidelines, that say what mm. you should do in a death penalty mm-hmm. case or, or otherwise. And I read a, an opinion that said, well, technically, they're just guidelines. So while it would be nice for the lawyer to do this and, and do it confidently, it's not technically a requirement. And so let him off the hook in that case. Mm. Um, but yes, and there, there have been um, some findings and and opinions and case law that says that there is a duty to investigate. Um, And that that was a big part of Toshomi's case that Mm -hmm. the the court relied on, the Seventh Circuit ended up relying on in his case was that that investigation was was not completed, was not done at all. So Toshomi, did you know at the time that your attorney wasn't, that was supposed to do investigation and wasn't doing anything? Uh, what was the conversation between you and the attorney? Well, I trusted the decision-making. As I said before, I had never been through any situation like that before. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, he was a lawyer. He knows more about law than me, so I trusted him with my life. So I didn't, I didn't know what his game plan was. I just knew, I was banking on the fact that I knew that I was innocent, but I didn't know the process, you know, so... 
I didn't know. I didn't actually know until I didn't realize until later that he wasn't doing his job. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was looking at the fact that I was innocent, and um, okay, even if you got people lying on me, I never thought that you know that would be enough to find me guilty for something that I didn't right. do. Right. You know, but yeah. picture says a thousand words when you don't say anything back. He advised me not to take the stand for myself. Looking back, you know. The jurors needed to hear me say that I didn't do this. Um, they needed to hear my witnesses. They needed to hear this stuff, but I, 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 I don't call him a public defender. I call him a public pretender. He's a great guy. He's a great guy, but he's a horrible lawyer. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, um, and I'm not. And, you know, public defenders across the country get a bad rap because of situations like this. There's some very good public defender attorneys. But because of what happens in cases like this, and court-appointed attorneys as well, uh, they get a bad reputation. Um, And and in this case, case he was, like I say, he's a great guy. He's just just zero witness. I mean, anytime you... You put on a website that you need zero witnesses to be the case. That's kind of like crazy as a as a lawyer, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and and Lauren, what? Where is this attorney now? What's going on with him? I guess it's a him. Is it him? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I think he might be retired now. To show me, do you remember? Well, uh, he went into private practice. Um, I don't know if he's still doing it. But uh, uh, if he did retire, it must have been just recently. Okay. He apologized right. to me. He apologized to me. He said he said to me he knew I was always innocent. He did. Yes. Wow. Well, at least, and, uh, at least like he apologized. Still practicing. Yeah. At least he apologized. I mean, that's that's pretty huge. It doesn't it doesn't cover that you spent uh, you know almost twenty years in prison, but um, but. At least he had the good decency to apologize. So, so we didn't go. We didn't t- describe the crime. So, um, Lauren, why don't you s- tell us what what the crime was and how they identified to show me? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, <clears throat> like to show me said, this was a Christmas Eve night, early Christmas morning crime, and it was a really heinous and brutal crime, which was part of the the issue that it caused a lot of, of uproar and around the holidays. Um, this poor man was beaten to death uh, by multiple men. So it was, it was kind of this mob style beating hmm. and um, you know, it was witnessed by, by multiple people um, and they, you know, rounded up from what I understand a lot of, men from the neighborhood, young men from the neighborhood, and we're just trying to to find someone to, or find some people to blame it on. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, like I said, they, they arrested a number of men. They ended up charging 12, which is a ton of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they then from there dismi- just dismissed outright charges against four of the guys. Uh, like Toshomi was saying, they were trying to get him to uh, say it was him, you know, to lie, which wasn't wasn't the truth, and and to testify against other people. And it, they tried to do that with all of the guys, and it worked on some. And so some of them got their charges dropped in exchange for testimony against others. Um, some, you know, some a couple people pled guilty. Um, uh, another one was convicted at trial, and like I said, another. Uh, was acquitted at trial. Mm-hmm. So it was um, just a, a lot of moving parts, a lot of um, people involved. And I think that, that part of the issue was that it was at night. Um, the The man who was killed um, was with this woman early in the night, and they, they were buying drugs. Um, and then when, uh, you know, what what she said was that the, the drugs that they bought, I believe it was supposed to be crack cocaine, was fake. And so mm. the, the victim, Shepard, um, you know, went to confront the person who had sold the, um, the drugs to him. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when the fight ensued and these other people became involved. 
Um, and the, the way that Toshomi got involved into it is that he happened to be present. So he was in the neighborhood nearby when it happened, but he wasn't involved. And mm-hmm. so... The the woman, um, you know, wrongfully accused to show me of being involved in the fight, even though she was around the corner in a van facing the other way at the time of the fight. So she didn't even really see it. And there mm-hmm. were these three other witnesses who did see it and were right there. And they um, would have said and did eventually say at, at to the federal court that it wasn't to show me to show me um, was not present. And he um did not, or he that he was present, but he did not commit the crime. That he was uh-huh. standing um, by this other person's house, and he actually, while it was happening, couldn't couldn't watch, and and he he walked away and and had to leave. Um, and they, you know, picked out people who did actually commit the crime. They identified people, and some of the, the two two of the men that they identified were the two men that then were granted immunity to lie against Toshomi and say it was Toshomi that was involved. Okay. And okay. Um, so this poor man, James Shepard, you know, was um, beaten by, by a bunch of men. And, and so there was a lot of, a lot of uh, biological evidence because of the brutal nature of the crime. And so they were able to, you know, from a couple guys that they arrested, um, there was blood on their clothing from the crime. Um, Toshomi was never tied in any way to any sort of evidence, any biological evidence. He, mm-hmm. His DNA was never found on the victim. The victim's DNA was never found on anything that Toshomi ever owned because Toshomi never touched him. Right. Um, but, right. you know, this um, that alone wasn't enough with, with these people lying against him and the people who, who knew the truth not being called to testify. You know, it's, I don't know, it's just mind-boggling. Why, um, why weren't all of the people that went to trial tried together? Why were they severed? So, you know, it, it depends on the case. If, usually you will ask for severance because it's better for your client. Um, mm-hmm. And especially in a case like this, it's highly likely that the different defendants will be pointing the finger at each other, saying, no, it wasn't me, it was it. Um, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes being tried alongside someone else who, for example, might have a bad criminal history, if that comes into trial, um, or other issues, might make you look bad by association. I've had that happen where the jurors said, basically said after the fact that they wanted to convict my client because um, the guy that he was hanging out with at another time was a gang member. And so they were probably just gang members and needed to be taken off the street. Uh-huh. So, yeah. you know, there are a lot of reasons you want to be severed. Um, sometimes the court doesn't allow it. Um, in this case, it did. And, and, it, and it really depends on the judge. Some judges will allow um, cases to be tried at different times. Um, some judges won't. You know, in Chicago, we have we have double juries. We have multiple juries, so it'll be technically a separate trial with two separate mm-hmm. juries, but being tried at the same time. So both mm-hmm. juries are in there. Sometimes one is shuffled out and one is shuffled back in. Um, you know, and it, it's it's mo- mostly unheard of, but it's a, a special thing we have in Chicago. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and most prosecutors don't they oppose uh, severing one client from another because um, it because they can they can get convictions better if you have all the defendants present yeah. in the same courtroom it, right and they say you know for time and money purposes um, it's better for them to to try everyone at the same time mm-hmm. yeah okay so um, to show me let's go back to you Um I, I just I can't imagine I can't even get my head around uh, getting convicted and going to prison. So, what was that prison experience like? What you know was there anything you took away from being in prison that was positive or or I know it was negative, so I can't even ask you about that. But what about a positive something you took away from being in prison? 
Well, that's the thing. Um, you know, you can either leave prison or better or worse than what you were when you came in. And 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 I say at least ninety ninety for ninety percent of the people who are incarcerated were under the influence of drugs or alcohol, so far, shape or form. Uh, drugs or alcohol when they when they um committed got found guilty of their crimes or committed their crimes. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So you know you are around people. You are around people that um you don't know. You weren't raised with them. Um, you you have to you have to um. You have to find yourself, you know what I mean? Mm. So what I did was, you know, I was so focused on on my freedom, uh, I was asking God why, you know? So Mm -hmm. when I went to prison, I was really just trying to, you know, I went back and looked at this jigsaw puzzle made up of my characteristics and took a deeper deeper look within myself to see how, how did I end up here? How did I end up here? You know, just me, um, I wasn't the most responsible person in the free world, but I know that I, I wasn't supposed to be here. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. so you have to go back and find, just ask yourself why. So I started, you know, reading my Bible. Uh, well, and, and you said to show me uh, earlier during the show that, that, um, I don't know. I don't remember how you worded it, but it, but your life could have turned out differently had you not been arrested and gone to prison. Did I lose you guys? I'm still here. Okay, I lost to show me. I think. I hope not. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, something happened to his phone. Okay, um, I'll come back to that uh, once he he'll log back on. Okay, so uh, Lauren, tell us um, you had the a federal wrongful convictions grant to to begin investigating through the law school. Correct? Is that am I understanding that correctly? Right. So we have excuse me received a few federal grants. We've been fortunate enough to uh, be successful in those proposals. And so we've had a couple of wrongful conviction grants and then I think four now Bloodsworth DNA grants for DNA testing. Okay. And when did, uh, when did the, uh, when did that come through? What year was that? Do you remember? Uh, Well, we've had multiple. So um, yeah, I think, um, gosh, when we started working on, or the, I think the first one to show me fell under was one that we came, um, that, that we received maybe in 2011. Okay. All right. So the timing was really good for to show me. Right. Yes. I mean, a big that part was, of the that issue. That was, that was, that was, I want to. I want to say this: that my mother played a part in that. My mother was the reason why I actually got involved with the Innocence Project. That was her work. She passed okay, how did away that, while I was in prison. Yeah. All right. How did that happen? Uh, my mother. She was. She was helping me fight my case out here in the free world, and she. She heard that the Innocence Project would be at the University of Illinois, and she went and talked to this woman named Rhonda Keish. And Rhonda Keese um, felt my mother's pain, and she passed my information on to 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 lawyers and lawyers at the at the office of uh, Innocence, the Innocence Project office. And I and I and I and I had my doubts, you know, I had my doubts because you know I, I have been writing people like Northwestern, and they told me my case was interesting, but they had a, the caseload was so heavy due to mm-hmm. the caseload so heavy they couldn't help me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't I didn't really think nothing was going to come out of it. I was just focused on the federal part of it, like my federal habeas corpus. But sure enough, it came to pass. So to show me, when, what year was it? Do you remember what year was it that your mom uh, connected with the Innocence Project? What year was that? Do you remember? That was, in two, that was like 2000. I want to say the, the Innocence Project got involved in my case. So like That was like 2000, uh, 2000. 
seeing. Okay. And then uh, you're... Yeah, and, and Lauren's saying that uh, they got it, this grant in 2011. So you had, the timing was excellent. So, but th- but that shows you, when you got released in 2016, how much time it takes from the time, and you'd already gone through a whole bunch of appeals and gotten up to federal court by that time, right? Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. How- and, and, no, and here's the thing, and here's the thing, here's the thing. My mom had passed away in 2014. Oh wow! And I didn't even—I didn't even get to see. I didn't even get to go to her funeral. I didn't get to go to my my grandmother or my mom's funeral. And that was my advocate out here. You know, she was the one who got me involved with the Innocence Project. And the last thing she heard from on her deathbed was I sent her the letter that I had received from the Innocence Project to let them know that they were going to help me with my um my um clemency. Because hmm. at that time, my, a lot of my issues were exhausted, so. There wasn't a lot that the Innocence Project could do for me. I didn't have many remedies left. Had, mm-hmm. had I got denied, had I got denied on my federal habeas corpus, the only thing I had left was a clemency petition, and I'm st- I would have still been waiting on a decision from that clemency right now. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh yeah. So the Innocence Project got involved in the clemency petition. That's where you guys came in, Lauren. Yes. Originally, um, they, like Tashomi said, um, had already brought up these issues in state court, and there's this procedural bar um, from relitigating issues uh-huh. that have already been brought up, or even right. ones that you should have brought up at the time. If you knew about them at the time, you lose the ability to bring them up later. Um, uh-huh. The post-conviction world is very difficult. Um, so... At that point, it was either federal, which, like I said, is very rare that we can get any sort of relief from federal courts because, uh, again, a procedural issue, the, the standard is, is so high. Um, so clemency is, is another one, and that's where it, it's another possibility where we ask the governor to look at the case and do the right thing. Um, and those are also highly rare, especially in these types of cases. You know, sometimes you hear about them in some lower-level drug crimes, things like that, where the sentences are so draconian. Um, but it's, it's pretty rare that it that a governor will or a president in a in a federal case would uh, uh-huh. would agree to um, to commute the sentence or or something like that. So. That was the idea, so, and there was an attempt yeah. to do that, and it, it was, you know, nothing nothing happened with it. But um, Tashomi was able to um, to be released on federal grounds. So even though there was a newly uh, newly found evidence that was presented in state in the state superior court or the district court, um, showing that there were witnesses that said he wasn't there, they denied his appeal on that basis. So, right. Unfortunately, they don't consider these witnesses new. Um, oh, okay. Like right. said, the the okay. standards are really stringent because technically we knew about him before. Right. Um, and they mm-hmm. were in police reports. So the issue was then, okay, why, why on earth did his attorney not interview them? Yeah. So it still goes or back call to them at trial, and so yeah, that's when, goes, when why it was an ineffective claim. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Lauren. I appreciate that. So we have just a couple, three minutes left um, to show me. Tell us about your life in the last three years. What's been going on with you? Oh man, it's, it's been like a it's been a surreal um, dream. I mean. Uh, uh, the, 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 since then, the courts have apologized for finding me guilty. Uh, they apologized and admitted that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, I moved to another state. I, I changed my life. Uh, I'm still trying to do speaking engagements. If you if you get a chance, check out, go on Instagram to show me 95 page. To show me, to show me, to show me 95. Okay. And uh, to, show me, to show me Campbell 95. 
Show Me Campbell 95 or to Show Me 95. It's on Instagram, and I'm still working on um, books. I'm working on um, documentaries about my life, and, you know, I got a lot of stuff going on, and I'm, I'm bringing awareness to the fact that this still happens to people. So, That's yeah, fabulous. Um, I can't complain, you know. I'm um I'm uh, this this is I, I didn't it chose me. I didn't choose it. If you had told me this uh eighteen, twenty years ago that I would be fighting these for these type of uh, issues, I wouldn't have believed you. But I mean, hey, you know, the very thing you need in your life, that's what you gotta become for others. So yeah, I'm I'm making I'm I'm making life more meaningful. You know? And I'll oh, go ahead and complain for to show me that, <laughs> you know, when exonerees walk out of prison, I mean, he, it's amazing his outlook on life and his gratefulness when he could be so angry about what happened. Um, but exonerees walk out of prison with nothing. They, I mean, to show me didn't even, they wouldn't allow us to bring him a change of clothes in the prison. He had to walk out in his sweatsuit. So, um, and with no money. And it, it's not automatic that any sort of compensation or anything happens. If that does happen, it's several years later, usually. Um, and there are so many issues about getting a license, um, mm-hmm. getting health care, mm-hmm. getting a job. How do you explain these 18 years of your life that are, right. that are gone? Um, getting a and, place to live. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, uh, Lauren, you guys, I, I would love to talk to you for two more hours, but we're out of time. I'm so sorry. Um, I, I really wish you best wishes to show me and your book and all your efforts. I know that um, you, have a, you have a voice that's really important. And Lauren, thank you so much for being involved in such an important work that you're doing. Um, so thank you for being on the show. And for the rest of you, I have to cut off again. Uh, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and exonerees like to show me Campbell. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 